Hi everyone and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. I started this podcast for a very simple reason. You can find podcasts on pretty much any topic, but I wasn't aware of any that were focused on public service leaders. So rather than wait for somebody else to do it, I decided to give it a try. I wanted to give public service leaders a platform to tell their stories, to talk about the reforms and innovations they put in place, and to share lessons in leadership. I think this will be particularly interesting for current and future public service leaders, but a lot of the lessons are more broadly applicable. So I hope you enjoy it, and please remember to register on the website to never miss a future episode. Okay, this week's episode is with Rachel Law. Rachel is the Chief Executive of Possibilities, which is a Rochdale-based adult social care social enterprise. The Possibilities team moved out of the public sector, out of Rochdale Council seven years ago, and have been operating independently ever since. I have to declare an interest at this stage in that I have been a non-executive on the Possibilities Board for the last three and a half years, but I guess that also gives me a really good insight into the organisation and how they run, so hopefully that balances itself out. I am a huge fan of Rachel's. She's one of those very rare people who manages to combine fantastically natural leadership skills with a real grip on the detail and on management. In our discussion, Rachel describes why she decided to lead her service out of the council into an independent social enterprise. We talk about how COVID-19 has impacted her service and her staff and the people who use the service. We talk about the challenges that are facing adult social care and Rachel's got some interesting thoughts on that. Possibilities started its life with only service contracts, so it has grown as we will discuss, but Rachel's led the team on a diversification journey and that is particularly interesting and uh, a real lesson, I think, for organisations who are looking to become more sustainable in the long term. And finally, we try to unpick the culture at Possibilities and what the golden threads are that run through the organisation, which make it such a happy and successful place. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Rachel, I'm really excited that you've agreed to have a chat with me on the Radical Reformers podcast. I know you really well, obviously, um, and it would be great if you could just say a little bit about who you are. Yeah, so uh, um, we're Possibilities, so we're a social care organisation and we deliver services predominantly for adults with a learning disability. Um, We we deliver a range of services, supported living, day services, respite, employment, shared lives, um, and we have services um, all across the North West. Great. And just a little bit about yourself then. So you you were in... Rochdale Council and you've been the Chief Executive of Possibilities now for, for how many years is that? So seven years, so we started yeah. out the 1st of April 2014, it's our 7th birthday today. Wow, happy birthday. Possibilities, yes, yeah. so we've got lots of uh, online activities planned for this evening uh, for the people we support and staff, so it's going to be good fun. Excellent, and you, you mentioned some services there like shared lives and that type of thing just for people listening who maybe don't fully understand adult social care can you just explain what you know in practical terms those services are and what they mean 
Yeah, so shared wives, if you think of fostering, um, the easiest way to explain it is it's like fostering, but for adults. So people become part of somebody's family, they share their home and they share their, their lifestyle. So it's a fabulous service, got some amazing outcomes for people. Um, you can either do sort of long term support or you can do short term where a family can really support and enable someone to come independent. So they move into some more um, some independent type arrangements. So a really good service. And then you've also got, I mean, I know because I've, I've been there and I've seen them, but you've got some fantastic day centres. What are those services that you provide through those? So we provide day services for adults with a learning disability. We've got four centres and um, we really focus on people doing, um, focus on people's independence, but actually doing things worthwhile. So we have some enterprises, some um, small businesses that um, people in our day services work working so we've got a florist um, we have a trained florist they sell to the public some beautiful arrangements the people we support help with the flower arrangements um, they do funerals weddings etc so fabulous we do a gardening group where we do uh, uh, gardening for uh, community houses etc so yeah so it's the day service where there's activities but there's also sort of an enterprise um, added to yeah. So just for, for everybody listening, you're you're an adult social care provider, but we're not just talking about one contracted service. We're talking about a whole range of different services, and indeed you provide to different councils as well. We do, yeah. So when we spun out of Rochdale, obviously, um, we were just uh, providing services in Rochdale, and um, we were really clear right from the offset that we didn't want to keep all our eggs in one basket, that we needed to grow, we needed to expand. Um, so we've got services now across the northwest, supported living services predominantly, and a shared life scheme in Trafford, which we um, which we won a couple of years ago. So yeah, our growth has been quite significant over the past seven years. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm going to ask you a little bit about that later on. I just have to ask as well. So when when we're doing Zoom calls or MS team calls, sometimes you hear people's dogs barking in the background, but you've got a very special dog there called Woody, who sometimes comes into your office to have a sleep and you can hear him snoring sometimes. Is he, is, is he there now? He, he was here about five minutes ago, but I threw him out. For, for <laughs> so Woody's got the most hilarious face. So we bought, we bought Woody because he just is so comical. He's a, he's a British bulldog, isn't he? British bulldog. Yeah. And he wanders around at the offices, so he has a full reign of, of offices. And of course, I've made sure that he loves me most by feeding him sausages. So he always wants to be in my office. <laughs> he snores. I don't know if you, you know bulldogs, but they snore because of the, the sort of uh, flat faces. So I'm really distracted because all I can hear is him snoring. Um, I've got some tales to tell about Woody, but maybe later on in the uh, call. Yeah. And I, I, I know if, if you're on a, a call with a lot of people and you can hear snoring, you're kind of wondering hey, who's falling asleep. Um, yeah. yeah, loud, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope nobody can hear this in the background. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, just sorry, back to the to the interview yeah. now. But um, so possibility started um, as you've already mentioned when the adult social care services spun out of Rochdale Council seven years ago. Now it's it's your birthday today, as you said. Why why did you want to do that? Um, so when I worked for Rochdale Council, I, I just I stopped doing the things that I wanted to do. I stopped making a difference. I think for the people that were receiving services, just because of the funding situation. So all I found myself doing was restructuring 
cutting services, saving money. Um, our services were day services were tired looking. Our respite was tired looking. When we were showing people round, um, we just thought, who'd want to come here? Because they were really tired and not not the type of yeah. to feel proud of. Um, and also there was uh, the the start really of personal budgets. And I knew that um, if personal budgets took off the way that the government anticipated, then we wouldn't they wouldn't be able to afford services from the council. So I started to have a conversation with the staff and with the leaders of Rochdale Council about a different delivery model. And everyone, well, the leaders of the council kept saying, oh, that's a really good idea. But no, that, well, that was it. And nobody yeah. knew how to, what to do or how to spin out or how to set up a business. So I think for about four years, I kept just saying, we need a different delivery model. We can be better than this. And you know, the, the director at the time, you know, was really passionate about the services that we delivered, said they were very good and wanted to um, look how she could preserve those. So we um, we applied to be um, part of the mutual support programme and um, we uh, were supported by mutual ventures uh, to spin out. Uh, the first element was um, looking at the business and whether it would be sustainable. And uh, fortunately, it was. And then we started the actual process of, of moving out of, of Rochdale Council. And, um, you know, staff were really up for it. People think working for a council is a job for life. Um, and they were kind of, um, we want this to happen. And I remember the unions arranged a mass meeting with all the members. And they were they were anxious about the, the, the you know, the, the uh, spin out. And they were clear that it was outsourcing. That's what they felt. And actually, the staff said to them, you're not representing our views and we want this to happen. And it was like, wow, you know, yeah, you know, the staff were really fully on board. Um, well, so I suppose the staff are the, are, are the people who who live and breathe that kind of pressure and almost the probably feel like they're just managing the decline of the service, you know, um, as as budgets are tightening. So they they would live and breathe that. And I know from having met a large number of your your staff that that's not that's not what they want that's not what they're going to be happy with it's not and you know they were they were staff put at risk all the time because i was restructuring you know the services whilst they were good they knew they could be much better so yeah. incredibly supportive and you know what i feel i i felt at the time i was massively humbled that they took that leap of faith and they believed in in me and they believed in in possibilities you know and that that paid off yeah. And so you mentioned that the director at the time in the council was very passionate about the service. But how did you start the conversation with the council about this? Because you know, I'm thinking about the senior officers in the council, but also elected members. You know, this would be a huge change and probably viewed by them as quite a risk. Yeah, so we did a lot of lobbying. So we got yeah. the um, the councillors to come and speak to the staff. Um, and again, the staff were saying, we want you to support this and we want this to happen. And the director at the time was, uh, she was very persuasive and very influential, influential. So, yeah, together with the staff, you know, my positivity, with the director's positivity, you know, they saw that a different delivery model would be beneficial, not only yeah. for the people in Rochdale, um, you know, staff, the service users, 
And we also made some efficiencies when we spun out. So again, that was um, something that they, that they recognised as a as a good thing, really. So we were, yeah. we were providing services in a different in a different way and saving the council some money. Yeah, and w- just to be clear, when you talk about the new delivery model, it's a social enterprise, so it's a community interest company, isn't that right? It's a yeah, social enterprise, yeah. Yeah, and that means just, uh, I think most people who've listened to the previous podcast will know, but that, that means that it's not for externalised profit. What you generate remains in the organisation can, can be reinvested in, in services which benefit the community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned that staff were were really up for it. Now, I'm sure all staff weren't entirely up for it. That wouldn't be natural. So did you face any resistance or doubt or challenge from the staff group? Well, what we did was um, the council at the time had a policy of early retirement or voluntary redundancy, and that applied to everybody, they said. And those people that that didn't want to follow this journey a lot of them took um, voluntary redundancy or early retirement. So um, we probably had about 40 people that left. And that was out of a staff group of? About 220. Okay, right. Uh, so, and that, you know, that's the right thing for them to do. You know, it was the right decision to, to make. I mean, obviously, that's an awful lot of staff that we we lost and we had to manage that. Um, we put in apprentices in and we thought that, we could um, give people 12-month apprentice, and then when we set up the new enterprise, they could then uh, transfer into the new enterprise or, or get a, a, a full-time role uh, with working with possibilities. So that's how we managed it. Quite, quite creative. It worked really well, but it was, di- you know, it was difficult to manage at the time. So that's you know, around 200 staff at, at that point, maybe a bit less, but you've obviously got a lot more, and you've had really impressive growth certainly in terms of service contracts since then. How has that happened? Um, I mean, I, I know that um, we'll come back later on to some of the more uh, entrepreneurial investments that you're making as an organisation, but just in terms of increasing the number of service contracts and, and that growth, how, how did all that happen? So, yes, we've had seven years of growth, seven years of uh, consecutive surplus, and um you know, um, we've gone from uh, our, our profit being zero to making some healthy reserves. And I think right from the offset, we um, we chased growth. Um, and I remember, I remember on the 1st of April 2014, when we spun out and I thought, oh, the hard work's all over. And oh, my God, it was <laughs> How naive was I? So, you know, all the processes, policies, new ways of working, we had to sort of introduce. But even right from the offset, we, we didn't stand still. We looked for new opportunities um, to grow. We had um, a quite a small staff team. So we were, we were we spun out on a shoestring in terms of uh, the senior management. Yeah. And so we didn't have uh, long meetings just in, you know, in terms of decision making. We were swift. We were, we were quick. We also got rid of the make, do and mend philosophy. So we decided that everything, that when we worked for the council, because we had, you know, more, more money to invest, we decided that we'd get rid of that make, do and mend and we would be world class in everything that we do. So make, do and mend, is that just kind of putting up with what you've got almost? Is that that sort of philosophy or how is it? Well, it's just that we didn't have any money to invest in services. So yeah. our services were shabby. They were really poor looking. Our respite service was was shabby 
and you know we had no money to invest to make them somewhere that you'd want to send your son or daughter unfortunately because the council had no, no money so we decided that we would be world class in everything that we that we did so for example our head office Cherwell had um we, we had an urban farm but we had an acre of really undeveloped land and I said um we need to do something with that land so we got a grant and put some of our uh, surplus in and it's now a, a well-being garden so it's a hundred and fifty thousand pound outdoor space not only for the people we support but also the, the community we also um were curious yeah but we're constantly looking for innovation and for doing new things and doing things that are different we explore what people are doing in other services or other countries and look at if we can do something similar if we believe it's something that the people we support would be interested in we don't have a blame culture um, we try new things, as, as you probably know. Uh, we're constantly looking to innovate. And if we don't, if they don't work out, we have our uh, reframe culture. So what did we learn and how could we do, how could we have done it differently? And we're not passive providers of support. We want to be thought leaders. So so th- those are the kind of things that we yeah. would be um, yeah. successful. Yeah. And, and then just, sorry, no, go on, Rachel. So we've had um, our CQC uh, ratings. I, I was just going to ask you about that because I know that's really impressive. Yeah, so we've had two uh, two uh, CQC inspections, both outstanding, and in particular outstanding in well led, which I believe is quite difficult to get. It is. Uh, so yeah, we're and we're proud of that. You know, we've worked really hard. We have um, sort of a, a project plan which looks at how to be CQC outstanding. So we're constantly looking at what other people do. And incorporating those into our sort of outstanding plan. Uh, I think I think that's fantastic. Being we'll we'll come on to the, the culture of possibilities later on, but just that being a learning organisation and you very much you demonstrating that is is really important. Um, I just want to come back to just uh, about the growth point you said about chasing growth. Now I just want to be very clear with everybody that you mean that from a perspective of spreading your good service as widely as possible it's not a kind of a traditional private sector thing it's about spreading the good service uh, and growing that way isn't it it is yeah i mean we've, we've talked about growth and it's not you know i don't think it's a dirty word it's about absolutely passionately passionately caring for the people you support and trying to deliver the best services that you possibly can and of course, you know, there's contracts that have come out and we've said we're not going to go for that because we won't be able to deliver the services that we believe people need. So it's not just that we've gone for everything. Yeah. We haven't. We've been very careful about the things that we've gone for. We need to make sure we can make a difference and we can still deliver those quality services. Yeah. And just to, to put some rough metrics around the growth, I mean, in terms of staff numbers and contract turnover, you've more or less tripled in size haven't you since since the start yeah so we've got uh, around 600 employees now and we've spun out with about 200 220 yeah. and our, our turnover was around 5.6 million when we spun out and it's now just over 16 million so oh fantastic Re- really impressive and to be able to do that i think and maintain that outstanding quality is not easily achieved so really well done there so i mean this wouldn't be a current conversation if we didn't if we didn't talk about covid covid 19's had a huge impact on your staff and service users i know so what what has the last year been like 
Oh gosh, it's probably been the most difficult um, that I can ever remember. And I've worked in social care for around 25 years. So it's been a real, real challenge. Yeah. Staff have been frightened. Uh, the people with support and families have been frightened. But obviously people still need service delivery. So it's been a real challenge. But, you know, the staff have been just super amazing. So some of the stories that you hear are just humbling. So, you know, we right at the beginning we had um, staff shortages, like probably a number of uh, social care organisations. You know, staff were doing 70 mile round trips when working in other service areas just to make sure that people weren't put at risk. We had COVID that unfortunately, unfortunately got into you know, about support, some of our supported living services and staff locked in. So they stayed there for like 10 days so that there was nobody else coming in and out, you know, leaving the families at, at home and, that you know, not not really knowing the risk because we didn't know that much about COVID right at the very beginning. There was uh, issues around PPE, which I'm sure you'll have read, there was a shortage of PPE, which, um, again, was incredibly stressful. I remember um, the admin, it became a full-time job just trying to chase down uh, PPE for staff to make sure we've got enough supplies. It was a real difficult, difficult time. And I know as, as the type of organisation you are, which, which is a, a bit more independent, you were able to move very quickly on PPE and I know certainly from conversations we had around the time you were able to secure adequate PPE for your staff when I think it's fair to say not not every organisation had that success. Yeah we were, we never um, we, we, we didn't run out of PPE we didn't have we had a shortage where you're thinking oh no I hope that delivery arrives in the next couple of days because otherwise it's going to cause us an issue but yeah. we were able to provide PPE um for, for for the staff fortunately so yeah but it became intense trying to trying to track down PPE. Yeah. i mean it is i mean it's a hard, it's a hard enough job running the services and running the organization w- with all these additional layers on top um you mentioned some really interesting examples of staff going above and beyond traveling long distances locking in yeah why do you think staff did that? And I know there's an easy answer that is just because they're they're very committed to the service. But I get the feeling every time I walk into possibilities that the staff are very committed to possibilities as an organisation. What is it? What's in the air that makes staff think, right, actually, do you know what? I am going to go that extra mile. Staff have invested in the organisation. So, for example, we have a staff advisory group um, and that's chaired by staff director so staff have voting rights and they're able to elect a staff director that sits on our board so that connection between the board and between the staff is is great because we have the advisory group and you know we share our board papers we ask them how can we do things better how can we do things differently so that they do feel really invested into the organization you know we gave um we gave staff a 500 pound bonus uh, this year for, for working through COVID as a, as a thank you. So, you know, where we can, we, we try and reward staff and, and people do feel passionately about the organisation. I'm sometimes surprised and overwhelmed when I hear some of the stories that uh, come back to me just about how heavily invested people are in the organisation. And, and are you getting back to some sort of normality now in the organisation or, or are you still very much in lockdown mode? Um, 
Well, we've got over 80% of staff vaccinated and over 80% of the people we support vaccinated. So that's great. And obviously, we'll continue to strive to get 100% of people vaccinated. We are looking at um, reopening up, obviously, when government guidance, because we've got a, a community cafe, we've got an urban farm, we've got our, uh, you know, florist, etc. So we are looking at opening up. I think day services will change over time. I don't think we will ever get back to how it was before the pandemic. Yeah. For a variety of reasons. Some people have took cash budgets. Some people want to do other things during the day. We are developing an online platform called the Curiosity Box for people which will have uh, lots of vocational and non-vocational qualifications on there just to try and do things differently for people during the day, which is really exciting. Yeah. Um, but we are, we are planning, we're going to plan on having a big party when we can, because <laughs> um, I think people just desperately want a little bit of fun. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. Just um, to put some context around that question about about getting back to normal, we're, we're speaking in early April 2021. So a, a lot has been said and written about the pressure that adult social care is under in terms of funding. I mean, there's multiple things here, aging population, people having increasingly complex needs. How would you describe the challenges that lie ahead for adult social care? I mean, you know, everything that you read in terms of the sector, you know, it is chronically underfunded. Uh, the work, there's huge uh, workforce capacity issues, unmet need. So it's kind of a, a whole big big mess really that needs to be sorted out. I mean, we're waiting for the green paper, long awaited green paper, which yeah. hasn't transpired yet. But, you know, we need an uh, urgent long time, uh, long time, long, t- uh, long term funding agreement. Or funding we've been, we've been ma- waiting a long time for a long term funding agreement. And I'm living in hope. I mean, I just think that COVID's shown, uh, put a spotlight on the sector really and just shown how how important social care is you know the, the, the sector has done an amazing job alongside the nhs and you know we need a, a, a long-term funding plan urgently yeah i, mean, I was just going to say you're, you're absolutely right i mean a well-funded adult social care service is the pressure valve for the nhs as well i was just about to say that right, right. okay it goes hand in hand <laughs> so if you know it puts pressure a, a, a poorly funded social care service puts pressure on the NHS so you know we need to we need that long-term solution but as a provider we still look for opportunities so you know we know that you know there's a funding issue in every local authority that we work in so we kind of think well what can we do to try and support local authorities to to help them with their funding situation because we could all sit and and think oh god what we're going to do but we've got different initiatives in services so we, we we provide just enough support so if we don't need hours for somebody, and we've took over services where there's been an incredible amount of hours in supporting people, and it's just not needed. So we've, we've talked to local authority or the commissioners and said, actually, these people are being over-supported. They don't need all, all that support. We uh, have an um, initiative called Active Support, where we really focus on uh, independence and teaching people new skills and new tasks. We we have an, our employment service. So there's 6% of the uh, adults working age people with learning disabilities that work currently and we know a lot more want to work so we really try and support people 
to, to find employment opportunities to, to set up micro enterprises, etc. Just sort of perhaps they don't need to come into day services and they've got something else um, that they can do during the day. So, yeah. so we, as, as a business to, to, you know, to be as responsive and innovative as we can. Yeah. What really comes across there, Rachel, is that you and the possibilities team aren't sitting back waiting for the government to get their act together. You're proactively uh you look outwards towards your service users and your friends who are service users rather than constantly looking up to government for an answer. You're very much in the organization is very much in the mindset that these vulnerable people need support now and we're going to try and make it work and do what we can for them right now rather than waiting for a green paper or, you know, would you agree with that? Well, yeah, I mean, as you said earlier, this green paper, this promised green paper, you know, it's, been, it's a long time coming. So I don't anticipate that it will be out soon. I, I don't anticipate that there will be a long term funding settlement for, for adult care. So let's look at what we can do and let's work. Let's look at how we can work collaboratively with local authorities. It's a partnership, isn't it? So what can we do to try and support one another? With that in mind and with that funding context in mind, what are your plans for the future for possibilities? You know, how can you ensure that it remains sustainable and continues to deliver for the communities that you look after? Yeah, so we've, um, we're looking at diversifying our income stream. We've found chasing contracts is a little bit like race, race to the bottom because, you know, the, the contract value is being squeezed all the time. So we are uh, looking at more of an asset-based model. So we are we're just in the process. They're nearly nearly finished building 17 apartments for people with learning disabilities. So people will have their own front door. Supported living, the traditional supported living, is an old model now where four or five people live together. Uh, they don't people don't want that anymore. Their aspirations are higher. So we're developing our apartments. We've got the local authority Rochdale Council to asset transfer some land. And uh, we got a loan through them, through the Public Works Loan Board, uh, in order to build the apartments, which is really quite exciting. So that's some of our plans, and we're looking at developing some more apartments in different different service areas, just based on, on demand. Again, the Curiosity Box, so it's an online platform, which I mentioned earlier. We're looking at going into partnership with um, some um, platform design and development experts. So again, that could potentially be sold worldwide so we've got we've got Ribby Hall so Ribby Hall is a beautiful lodge and we bought that so that as a holiday um, destination or accommodation for the people with support because you know people couldn't afford to go on holiday so we've we bought the lodge and we support people now to have holidays and that's um, available to staff as well so yeah we just keep going for contracts that we feel that we can make a difference a difference to the people that we can support I think that that's really that's really sensible. Just that having more of a diversified portfolio of things. I think the the stuff around investing in buildings and assets is is really interesting and really needed. You know, there's a very there's a very clear omit need there that the possibilities as an organisation is really well placed to support. And also that idea of the curiosity box being an online resource. So in in one of the previous podcasts, I interviewed. Um, Bruce Leake from Suffolk Libraries and they were saying, he was saying that they had put a lot of their services online and actually were getting quite a lot of international attention. Um, so it actually uh, opens up a whole new world, quite literally, that sort of um, endeavour. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, it's a, the digital age, isn't it? You know, we've all had to do things really differently. You can't go into the office. You still need to have meetings. So, you know, we thought that we would um, we would explore a, a different offer for people. I'm really quite excited about it because I do think it's going to be quite unique. There's nothing out there um, that we can see that delivers this type of offer. So it's exciting. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So I, I always, uh, in these conversations, I ask a, a question about leadership and culture. And I mean, I know when anybody who has ever walked into possibilities, it will be instantly struck by the warmth and I guess the right word is happiness of the place. And, and that comes from both the service users and the staff. So how, how have you achieved that? Well, one of our values, funnily enough, is about being happy. So right. really important. And that's important to us because if the staff aren't happy, then the people they support are not going to have a good day. So we we have a happiness manifesto, which um, we run a month long we run month long sessions around the uh, science of happiness. We we explored how people could be happy at work and also in the, the private life. So real real golden thread throughout the organisation. And I guess as well. So I don't like sort of the hierarchical approach of management. I don't believe that I'm more important than anybody else. I think that we all have a job, you know, a part to play and a role within the organisation. And so I'm just me, you know, within the organisation. You know, and I, I, I was thinking about, about this. And um, I remember oh, about 12 months ago chatting to, to, to a new employee. She was at the photocopier. And the next day there was a card on my desk and um, it, it was from this employee. And she said, um, I'd just like to thank you for making me feel welcome. The last company that I worked for, I never even got to speak to the chief executive. It's such a powerful thing because I'm just being me, you know, I'll go and yeah. make people feel welcome. Why would I not? And so, you know, it just kind of brought brought home about how my approach, I believe, for me, is, is so important. I just don't believe in the hierarchical management approach. I don't think it gets the best out of people. And that's kind of the model that we emanate across the business. I think that there are real lessons there because it's very clear. I mean, I know we've been on calls where service users wander into your office and you you welcome them there's no you know you shouldn't be here or anything like that and and obviously you know any member of your team can come in for a chat or to talk to you about anything and I think some leaders would I mean maybe this is a a slightly old-fashioned view but I know some leaders certainly who would think that that would be a distraction for you and not professional and all the rest of it but your performance in terms of CQC results and growth and everything just completely disproves that. You know, you can have that happy, open culture, non-hierarchical, and still run a really successful business. But what you get on top of that is a really happy place to work. And, and like we said earlier, staff are really invested in the organisation. Yeah. Can I just add, the dogs arrived back in. He came in about two minutes ago. He's now snoring really loud. I can't. I don't think we can hear him, but maybe we will hear him before the end. But that that would be brilliant if we if we could get him on microphones. <laughs> oh dear. Um, when we say anything can happen when you're at possibilities, it really can. and I think I mean some of the things that we do as well. I'll just tell you about some of the things that we do. So I have um, well, obviously it's stopped because of COVID, but we have coffee and cake with me. So if all the new uh, starters. I, I try and meet and um, have coffee and cake with, and I talk to them about their experiences of recruitment, induction, training, and it's just a way of, uh, for me to get to know people. Just because I, I, I can't, I can't get to see as many people as I'd like. 
Um, we also have our turnover is below sector average. It's around 22% our turnover and the sectors are just over 30, 30%. We also have a, a number of initiatives that we implement which uh, recognises staff. So we have our awards night. So it's, um, staff can nominate um, the peers for an award. And we have a, a huge party at um, at a hotel with a three course meal, etc. We have wow cards, so they're given out randomly by me to people that have been really passionate about the job or gone over and above uh, expectation. We give vouchers at Christmas. We have a duvet day, so people with 100% attendance get an extra day off. So we have all these sort of initiatives which try and show how much we appreciate our staff and how how much we value them. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, as a final question, Rachel, and I mean, anybody listening to this, there's loads of nuggets of advice there. But what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or a charity or a social enterprise delivering public services who wants to make an impact in the way you have? Now, you've given lots of pieces of advice, but what's the kind of top one? I would say never give up. So, you might have an idea or you might want to do something and somebody, um, there'll be 101 barriers why you can't do it. But actually what you need to do is find ways uh, to go around those barriers. You know, never give up, really. That's what I'm kind of kind of saying, because look what can be achieved. Yeah. Brilliant. Rachel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, that was a really fascinating discussion. And I said at the start that Rachel had this unique blend of leadership and management skills and hopefully that really came across i certainly felt it did you'll notice also that rachel when i asked her to introduce herself at the start she immediately started talking about possibilities this is a leader who is all about her team and organization i think that speaks volumes for the sort of person she is possibilities journey began out of clear frustration and a resistance that rachel had to just managing the decline of a service and that took a lot of bravery and without a very supportive director at the time might have been a more difficult journey than it was and I'm not saying it was easy. What really struck me was the bit of the conversation where Rachel talked about essentially giving money back to the commissioner when they had assessed that a particular service user was getting too large a package. I think that shows incredible confidence as an organization and a real basis for a trusting and open relationship with the commissioner. As far as the outlook for adult social care goes, Rachel is certainly someone you will want to pay attention to. And it's deeply worrying to hear Rachel describe delivering adult social care contracts as a race to the bottom. As we discussed in our conversation, adult social care is the pressure relief valve that the NHS needs and has to be treated like a real partner. And I guess there is now an opportunity with the new NHS white paper and the place-based partnerships that are clearly outlined there, which put adult social care and councils around the table. Um, we'll have to see how, how those play out. What is more worrying was uh, an interview I heard with former Chancellor George Osborne with the Institute for Government, where he was very honest about saying that actually for politicians, solving the adult social care problem in terms of its funding is 
deeply problematic for politicians and actually the easiest thing to do for politicians is to keep kicking the can down the road so we'll see how this plays out but someone at some point is going to have to really grip this i think the major learning point from this conversation is how possibilities is looking to make itself more sustainable against the backdrop of reducing contract values and more financial pressure on on adult social care their move into investing in assets and buildings and to generate income through that as well as providing for an unmet need is something that other organizations can really learn from and then finally gosh if you if you could bottle the culture at possibilities um you'd really be onto something rachel describes some of the golden threads about how they focus on making possibilities a happy place to be and how happy staff lead to happy service users. That's really important, but it is impossible in words to just grasp what it is. There truly is a, an open door policy for Rachel and other members of the management team. I've been there on a number of occasions when service users and staff have come in, knocked on the door, had a chat with Rachel about something. She's so welcoming. She never gets annoyed with people doing that. And I think that just makes its way through the organization and is really something very special to see. So I really hope you've enjoyed that episode. I certainly enjoyed talking to Rachel as I always do. And please remember to register on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to never miss a future episode.